This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. My guest today is... Biju Apachin. Biju is the executive director of POV Film, which was founded in 2007, which offers a first point of entry for young creatives from traditionally underrepresented communities into the film, TV, and advertising industries. Biju and I met last month at the alumni gathering of the Governor General's Canadian Leadership Conference, hosted by 2022 alums. I'm an OG alum myself from 2008 conference, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We had a great chat at the time at the event, and a week later, Biju invited me to a meeting at POV Film at the amazing Artscape Daniels Launchpad, where we're sitting today in this recording studio. Uh, it's uh, located in the Toronto waterfront. I was, through our tour and our discussion, I saw firsthand how young, aspiring visual media professionals and audio media professionals are able to practice their trade, network with other emerging talent, incubate projects, and most importantly, network with industry people who can provide access to opportunity. We'll get into all of that today and more with Biju. Biju, welcome to Black and White. Wow, thank you. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to be here, Stephen. Awesome, awesome. I'm glad we could make this work. And and I know the commute for you to get here was very long down the hallway. That's right. So, yeah, you, you know, know thanks I, for being on time. I had to take my subway and a couple <laughs> of streetcars to get here. So <laughs> Amazing. I mean, by the way, I just wanted to, to touch... Uh, um, uh, I believe you're the chair of the board of, uh, and who actually f- helped found this was Edie Weiss. Edie Weiss, that's yes. right, yes. So for those who are not in Toronto or Canada, uh, Edie is essentially an icon and a force in the ad industry, marketing industry in Canada for more than 30 years. Someone I'd had the, the privilege to uh, collaborate with more than a decade ago when I had my agency down on Portland with another partner. So I'm uh, not surprised that she's uh, championing this. She's, uh, my impression of her when I met her was how supportive she was of the industry and the people in it. So uh, great that uh, she's part of this amazing program. 
We're very lucky to have her. She's, you know, the head of the Radke Film Group, which is a very large and prominent commercial production company across Canada. And the access to networks and resources that she has has been able to amplify the efforts that we've been able to put out in the last little while. She was also recently inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. I so saw that. Just wanted to give her a congrats and a yes. shout out on that as well. A well-deserved congratulations. Like Radke, you know, I, I, I heard she told me the story of how she came to be the, the owner and the CEO That's all right. those years ago. Uh, after an unfortunate, obviously, the, the original passed away. But, uh, I mean... Radke's undisputedly one of the largest, if, if one of the most respected production network of companies in Canada. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, as I mentioned uh, at the top here, uh, we met at the Governor General's Canadian Leadership uh, Conference alumni uh, cocktail party. That's right. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is great because yep. what I like about these events is it brings the alumni. So just to orient our audience as to what that conference is about. Maybe I'll let you explain, because you just participated this year That's in right. 2022. Well, so tell us a little bit more about I, what that I'm, is. I'm the rookie. You're the OG. So exactly. I, I hope I can do it some justice here, <laughs> Stephen. Uh, you know, I think it's meant to bring together 250 leaders from across sectors, across the country, in order to be able to talk about the challenges that are facing Canadians today. Um, oftentimes, I think we don't get a chance to have discussions with folks that don't necessarily share our views. And this platform really provides an opportunity for folks to come to be themselves in a safe environment while also challenging each other's opinions about how communities exist across Canada, about how the economy functions across Canada, about what leads innovation and tech in Canada, you know, and the type of connections and networks that we, that we can create in order to be able to uh, build sustainable partnerships that can put Canada in the forefront. So really exciting opportunity. You know, we were all given a study group uh, as part of our training during those three weeks, I like to call. And the whole purpose of that was to, uh, you know, give us an opportunity to learn from the people from the provinces that we visited, what their individual challenges were instead of us making those assumptions about it, while also living and eating and yes. playing like like they do. And it was just a really eye-opening experience. Now, you know the the accommodations were at times a bit uh, tough. You know I was I hadn't been in a bunk bed in about a decade, uh, and my legs were hanging out. But you know this is all part of that challenge that they put forward to push yourself push yourself outside of the comfort zone. Yeah, and and so the conference is I believe it's pushing on close to forty years. Uh, traditionally happened every four years, as you said. Brought uh, my year brought two hundred seventy five. You know they call it emerging leaders of tomorrow. Uh, to go into those communities, I went to the Yukon, which awesome. was quite amazing. I, mean, I believe you went to Saskatchewan, right? Quebec, Quebec City. You went to Quebec yes. City. Amazing. Which is beautiful. Uh, La Belle Province. And, uh, and, and our conference was about community and leadership. So, uh, and I bring this up because it's going to lead into our conversation today, is, you know, I was in the Yukon in 2008. So, as you mentioned, you go, I think we spent 10 days in communities, a lot on Indigenous in, within Indigenous communities and talked about what was going on. It was at the same time as the apology that was happening uh, mm -hmm. from the government of Canada to Indigenous people in regards to residential schools. And I remember thinking, I'm not quite sure what they're talking about with the residential schools, right? right? And uh, and it wasn't, uh, uh, our plenary took off in Banff, was in Banff, Alberta. If you ever, people who have ever been in the Rocky Mountains, it's beautiful. And all these major speakers were invited to speak there. And one of them was the chief of the Assembly of First Nations, who at the time, Phil Fontaine. 
and all of them were speaking to us about leadership. But Phil yeah. Fontaine, in front of 300 of us, said, I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm going to talk to you about my residential school wow. story. And I'm going, okay. And then he started telling us, and I'm not going to take the time, but it was a, it was a, a devastating testimonial to listen to there was not a dry eye and actually I had to leave the room and go outside in the in the cold air of Banff and collect myself uh, with all these feelings of shame about the fact that I knew nothing about this and an anger that my country that I love so much had done this etc and then but the good thing is I got to talk to Phil Fontaine after and I said to him you know how moved I was and that now that I knew I was going to do the work and learn and become more aware and then fast forward and you know from our program it's about what you're going to take from the conference and move forward and all these years later i wrote a book this year as you know black and white and it's informed by the learnings that i did and my perspectives of what change could look like for all people who have traditionally been marginalized in this country. And I'm happy to say in my cohort, the governor general is actually a woman from the indigenous communities, as you know, the Honorable Mary Simon, who had put a call out through this cohort of delegates to go out into these communities that we come from and to really push that message about doing the work for reconciliation and not just making it a performative one. But what does that mean as individuals in positions that are coming as leaders what do we do in these leadership positions to ensure that these stories are being told, that the history that's been hidden for so long is being shared and that we're learning from these messages so that this stuff doesn't happen again, right? And so really a, a really powerful and, and, as you know, a very long-term impactful impactful uh, experience. Amazing. And then, you know, because we're going to get into this with you about networks and access, but that conference is part of that. That's right. Right? Which is why we're actually here today because – we met through that, and, and it expands our networks and connections. You know, we have past alumni who were mayors and, and uh, uh, you know, former, actually, you know, political leaders yep. and corporate leaders and so on. So it's amazing. Um, and, and that's really going to be the crux of our conversation today because what, you know, your personal background, which is what I want to talk about, and, and your family background, and then, you know, all the things that you've done, and you have an impressive CV, and, and you've really... Thank you focused uh, in terms of trying to make an impact in community in all the roles. I went through your CV, you know, working for <laughs> Civic Action, which is an organization tied to the city of Toronto, uh, the Canadian Centre for Diversity, the Toronto District School Board, again, where you're focused on on youth, yep. uh, the YMCA, and today POV Film. So uh, when we're talking about leadership and, and what you're bringing forward into your current role, what drew you to this work, right? And I, I think I... I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you know, <laughs> I'm assuming your family and personal cultural background Absolutely. kind of informed the choices that you made along the way that brought you to here. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that background and, and, and how it informed who you are today. Yeah, I, you know, maybe I can begin a little bit be, uh, when you know I'm an immigrant that that came into this country. I'm uh, I'm of Indian descent. I'm from a small state in India called Kerala. Uh, I'm a Malayali, which again is is a, a member of the Indian community, but again, not a lot of people know who we are. Uh, we're Christian. Uh, my parents were uh, raised Christian. They raised me Christian, but I was born in a in a Muslim country with a very sort of Hindu culture. So, right from the onset of of my my birth into this planet, I think I was exposed to the diversity of religion, diversity of culture, and diversity of perspectives and views, which have continued to shape. The kind of choices that I've made uh, since I began. Uh, as a young immigrant, when I moved here from the Middle East, we came from a very conservative community where 
uh, Islam was uh, the religion and we were not Muslim. And so there was a lot of uh, disparities that we faced as a, as a result of being a minority community in a Muslim country as Christians. Fast forward 13 years later, and now we're in Canada. All of a sudden, we're Christians, but we're immigrants. We're in a community where racialized folks haven't been uh, gaining as much momentum or success as we do see now, thank God. Uh, and it, it created this sense of uh, identity crisis for me, uh, what we at that time referred to as bilateral identities. You know, And I think as young people of color, and especially as young immigrants, a lot of people probably can resonate this this with this message of, you know, being one way at home, being another way at school, yeah. and being another way with, with your friends. And having to sort of reconcile your identity during those times, especially as a young teenager, was very challenging. Um, and what I quickly found out is if there isn't a way to direct those energies and those thoughts and those conversations to, to folks who've gone through those experiences, it's very hard for those young kids to be able to relate to that. And I didn't I didn't have anyone that I could relate to uh, at that time. I was very lucky to have a guidance counselor, a, a Dominican guidance counselor, Mr. Destiny, who's no longer no longer with us. But he was very quick to, to remind me, look, you have this opportunity here. You have to make the most of this. And he was the one that directed me in a way where I felt like, OK, I have some level of accountability, some level of trust from somebody that's not my family or my friend who sees something more in me than what I see for myself. And that was the first time, uh, you know, and it's no coincidence that it was another immigrant that did that for me, where I started to realize, you know, there is a sort of uh, a bigger piece to success. Because I think for me as a young immigrant, I had four options, be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or an accountant. If I wasn't any of those things, you know, film, TV, and, and charity work, are you kidding? This wasn't even in, in the perspective of my of my imagination. So. Having somebody like Mr. Destiny, you know, see that in me kind of gave me a notion, hey, look, here's a guidance counselor. He's not a teacher or, or a, a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or an accountant, but he's making these really impactful uh, changes in these young men and women's lives that that he's been interacting with as a as in his role as a guidance counselor. So that sort of tipped me into the world of social services and, and community work, because that was all very new to me. Yes. Uh, as you know, you know, this isn't something that every country does. Usually first world nations have the privilege of being able to do this type of work and having resources committed to doing that work. And, you know, in Canada, I think there's over 1.2 million people across the country who work in nonprofits. Is that amazing? Incredible, the amount yeah, of yeah. work and the diversity of uh, efforts that go into making Canada what it is known around the world as. So. What an exciting opportunity for me to jump into it, but I didn't get to it till much later. Uh, I, you know, I went to school, finished school, and kind of went into the you know typical corporate world. Uh, did a bit of work with a big brokerage company for a while, and did some analysis. And you know, I was doing some technical analysis for a big commodities trader. You know, predicting trends, forecasting trends of of commodities. Really exciting stuff. <laughs> but I'm, a, I'm a, I expect you know there's still uh, this you know, uh, tempest within you, you know, to, and I'm just speculating here where, you know, uh, corporate money, uh, success that is uh, traditionally seen as success versus uh, this burning need to know that you can apply your brain and your passion to um, paving the way for others like you but in a different way, in a more successful way. And you you were very intuitive in picking that up. Right. And I think, you know, when I looked for someone like that, that I could replicate, I couldn't find that person because again, everybody's idea of success was equated to those four professions that I mentioned earlier. 
And so while I was in this role, it really pushed me to a, a, a crux where I had to make a decision about what I wanted at a very young age. And, you know, at that time, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, live very minimally <laughs> with very little. And I felt this is a good opportunity for me to make that make that jump. And so I moved from the corporate side into the sales side uh, in the retail world, you know, and, and that's when I really discovered that I love interacting with people interacting with people from different backgrounds, from different classes, different economic systems, and just to see how they interact with the world also gave me a perspective that I hadn't had up until that point. The Because from my, you know, I'm, I'm from a, a lower middle-class family that struggled a lot. You know, my parents' education wasn't recognized when they moved here, so they had to begin from, from the beginning. They didn't have networks, they didn't have connections, they didn't have the access that was required for me to have any meaningful success. Well, you know, it, the the, the the stories which are you know uh in toronto i remember when i moved here in the 90s and you experienced it in, in, other, in other places as well but you know getting and having an amazing conversation with a taxi driver right you know and and uh and i always uh, you know ask you know where people are from and they explain it and of course i i realized that there's probably much more to them and they say well i'm an engineer back home i was a doctor i was a phd in this and i'm going you know and of course, we're making some progress to try and fix some of that credential stuff now. But you know, the reality is these highly educated, smart people have to make a living for their family. That's right, and they have to lay the foundations on which you know I'm not even first generation, where my kids can maybe benefit from. And when we think about the type of access that other groups have had in Canada and over generations. And then you try to compare your own success with theirs, it's an inequitable way to compare compare success. But you don't have that knowledge because it's not something that young people are taught. Uh, young people are taught, you know, you both start evenly at the same place. And so if you don't succeed, it's something that you didn't do right. And so that's what I thought for a very long time <laughs> until I finally got this big uh, sort of uh, interaction with uh, with uh, within the retail world where I was in sales and and working with different people. And I remember this uh, this woman came to me, you know, she wanted to buy something for her son and I was just about to hit my sales targets for the month and that came with, you know, a thousand dollar bonus and that meant I met my monthly sales yes. quotas and all of these things. And I was, you know, I pushed, she came and said, look, I have, you're, I'm coming to you because my son is about your height and size and I feel like you, you have, you know, some decent clothes here. Can you help me find something? I'm on a very strict budget and she, you know, was very kind of candid with me to say, I can't afford anything more, so like, please help me do it. But you know, me, the sales guy, wanted to close that sale and get that bonus. And yeah. so I did, uh, but what happened when I went home was there was a emptiness that I felt for the first time. It wasn't because, and I was doing well for that age, I think, you know, uh, I was making decent money, my commissions were good, I was living downtown Toronto, like it was great. But something then showed me that I, you know, I was, I sacrificed my values to make that sale and that just, that just came to me in a way where I almost saw my mom's face and that woman's face and <laughs> I saw someone else doing this to her and I was like, well, I can't believe I'm doing that. But that's how we all end up getting pulled into it, right? Like we chase this success, we try to do good for our family, but are we thinking about who we hurt along the way to get it? Are we thinking about how we're benefiting as a result of all of the things that we've had as privileges that we're using to then succeed, which is then taking away from somebody else? Because the reality is capitalism equals, you know, time equals labor, right? And your loss is my gain. That's just that's just how capitalist societies work. So for me to succeed, someone has to lose. And that was something that I couldn't reconcile fully. But but the but the the positive side here is that you're having 
you're having a, a, an epiphany around your conflict, right? And then you actually decide to do something about it. Absolutely. And that was the day I quit my job and started volunteering at, uh, at the YMCA, actually. And I ended up at a newcomer center, which was helping young uh, newcomers that were coming into Canada orient themselves with, you know, employment opportunities, social capital, networks, connections, but also for their kids to have a space to, like, meet other friends and meet other folks. And I was just blown away by the fact that this job fit me to a T. This is exactly my experience up until that point. It's I have a lot of knowledge at up until that point because I'd been in the country now for over a decade. I know exactly what these folks were going to go through. You had the lived experience. I had the lived experience. And here's a chance for me to actually use something and do something for folks so that they didn't have to go through what my family and I did. And that began sort of this journey into the nonprofit side. Now, I'll tell you. I think that job paid me $21,000 a year, <laughs> uh, which when I tell people now, they're like, how did you survive? And I don't know how I survived, but I loved, like I, I was volunteering. I was volunteering eight hours a day uh, to the point where uh, one of the managers in the office said, you're here more than our staff. Like, do you want a job here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's when I uh, well, started, you know, you started got, that you job. You actually got an increase of $21,000. That's right. Yeah, I was working for nothing. And I was like, you. okay, $21,000 in go. less than six months. Hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a huge increase. So where I want to uh, thank you for that. So I think it's important because uh, I know, I, I think it's important your story because of the work that you're doing today. But essentially, you know, you started the your this, paid job at the YMCA and I've noted that you've progressed and but really it was always about community was always about making an impact and one of the things you and I have been talking a lot about since we met was this whole notion of access right and 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 I remember you met you I think you must have said that 20 times during our conversation <laughs> and I said I know what you're talking about because I've been talking about this with others in regards to you know not only the need to create these pipelines of opportunity for uh, for communities for people that come from traditionally underrepresented communities black people people of color indigenous people and others um, but you know it's the it's the the access to networks right and um, you know and I, I was just talking to uh, someone else about that which is you know knowing people right so. I saw this stat the other day, 80% of people get jobs through a network, 80%, yep. right? And I know, I, I've, I think I've only applied to a few jobs in my whole life and gotten, I'm talking about when I needed to go apply for work. Yep. All the jobs have been referred to, projects, clients, et cetera. So when we come back, I want to talk about access and what that really means, what is that and why it's important. And I want to talk about POV Film and how this entire program and talk about the program and how it provides access to young people looking to get into the program. Looking forward to it. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. 
At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Welcome back to Black and White with my guest, Biju Papachin, here at POV Film. Uh... Bijou, we just we're just getting into uh, talking about access to opportunity and networks, and I know it's a major uh, focus here at POV Film. We'll get into that, uh, but just so you know, I think this is an interesting topic because you know access to networks and access to networks specifically. Um, you know, we're talking about you know. Uh, these are intangible assets, you know, to build careers, livelihoods, social mobility, and future generations of wealth, which is the connections to the people who can offer internships and mentorships and open the door and, uh, you know, your first job, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, considering you for uh, for a raise or for the next stage in your career um, or someone that has another opportunity, you're looking to pivot and go somewhere else. So... And I know this is like really at the at the core of what you're doing at PO Film. But before we, what I want to understand from you is, what are the realities, the historical realities in regards to access uh, that you've experienced, that you've seen in the work that you do, and that made you want to lead here and change that? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to answer that the best I can on my using some of my personal experiences. A lot of it, I think, has to do with this this uh, this notion that if you work hard, you're going to succeed, right? Like, I think, you know, whenever someone doesn't succeed, the automatic thing that people tell them is, well, you're not trying hard enough or you're not doing the right thing. And I, I think especially for folks that don't have that access to social capital, uh, 
they, they, they think, yeah, you know, I need to do something else. And oftentimes they go out and make their own way of breaking in and succeeding, right? And so the further up you go, the less of us you see. It's, it, and then you start to ask the question, well, if there's so many people at the beginning, why is why are only one or two making it all the way to the top? You know, and, and then why did they then become the example of how the rest of that community needs to fight and struggle to get there. You made it. You made it. <laughs> Steven, you made it, so yeah. we should all make it, yeah. right? And so, you obviously worked hard. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to take away effort and hard work that folks have put in. Of course. But, you know, I, I think it's too bad that we have to leave it up to luck and good fortune for for our, us as BIPOC folks, but also as other communities who are diverse and, and underrepresented to, to make it. It, it shouldn't come down to luck and, and opportunity and being at the right place at the right time. How many times have we heard that phrase, right? It shouldn't come down to that. So I think for me, it was really from a very young age evident that it wasn't just about hard work. And I, I needed to kind of figure out how to get into the rooms where I wasn't in, you know, or people like me weren't in. Because when I was like, hey, I want to become an executive director, and I, I couldn't really look at anybody around me who was doing that who looked like me, you know, who who came through, like, especially an immigrant. Like, if there were folks there, they, their families have been here for multiple generations or they were born here, right? Like, and so they had access to some of those networks, maybe not as much as others, but I had none of it. And so it didn't just come down to good marks and high grades, all of that. It came down to the connections you had, the networks you had. And so I spent some time throughout my career building that and trying to understand it. I didn't. I wasn't able to articulate it as well as I just did with you now, I've, I've had some some good fortune of doing some work on this and, and really trying to understand this issue. Uh, but at that time, what I figured out was you needed to have other people kind of champion for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you needed other people to open those doors for you. If they needed to stick their foot in so that it could stay ajar and I could squeeze in, then you needed folks like that. It didn't just come down because I, I saw people around me who were at my level or, or less than my level in terms of skill and competency, uh, and yet they were progressing so much quicker and faster and gaining more money than I was. Um, and that was the other thing that kind of made me ask this question, well, what is it that I'm doing that's stopping me? So there was clearly this invisible factor that was preventing. Yeah. It wasn't just hard work and, and effort. Uh, and as I started talking about that to others, they started to relate. And they're like, oh, my God, yeah. They, you know, and it just so happened this happened, and it just so happened this person said this, and that's how I got this job. And I'm like, this is so ambiguous. There's, There's got to be more to career development and, and success than just a good person feeling fortunate one day to say, you know what, Steven, I'm going to help you out. You yeah, know? and, I, and you know, I, <laughs> I, I mentioned that in my book, Black and White, I mentioned I've had those people, right? I've had headwinds, uh, but yeah, I've, had, I've been lucky enough to also come across good people in, in the right situations at the right time, Absolutely. right? Which uh, I've sought out as well. Yeah, right? I think and, that's how you and, build and, it. And also, I was prepared. I put in the hard work. I, you know, as I say, I don't think I did twice and two, you know, I worked twice as hard, but I definitely worked very hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? To overcome, you know, my thing was, I never want to give them a reason to say no. Exactly. Because if they said no to you, then everyone that looks like you that comes after you is also going to hear that no. I, I didn't want, you know, this document's not good enough. You didn't write this well enough. Whatever it, it was, right? I just wanted them to, at the end, they would have to, to make a decision on the merit, even possibly put aside their, uh, their prejudice, right? Or their bias. Absolutely. Right? And I think... 
being able to recognize that this is something that existed and prevented folks from moving ahead really made me want to ask this question. And in our work at POV, uh, we're focused on trying to help young, diverse talent from across the country break into TV, film, advertising, AR, VR, gaming, and, and the digital media worlds, and uh, or what we call the wider creative sector. And the creative sector, as you know very well, Stephen, is very exclusive. It's very gig-based. It's based on, you know, you're as good as your last job. If you're not part of those networks, you're not going to get in, and it's going to be very hard for you to break in. And so we wanted to begin by asking the question, well, what is this ambiguous thing that everyone keeps talking about? You know, the right networks, the right connection. There's always something The, you know, here's how you approach. Here's your five, five second elevator pitch. There's a whole bunch of industries that have been set up around this very notion of developing social well, capital. Well, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, one industry, when I was living in Vancouver in my 20s and stuff, and the film industry was really taking off with Canal Films, and, and I actually was in 21 Jump Street. I did a lot of, Cool. extra work to pay my way through college and stuff. But I know people that were getting it and, you know, just to get into the union. Yes. Right? Where where you have to actually get sponsored in. Right? So if you're coming from a community where people aren't traditionally working in that industry and aren't part of the union, how are you supposed to get sponsored in? Uh, right? So right. so I hear what you're saying. And it's a it's a challenge that I think people have figured out ways around. Mm -hmm. uh, but not it's not easily accessible for everybody. And so we wanted to take a crack at figuring out what this thing is. We did some research, We, uh, you know, and this is by no means a, a, a term that we've coined, but we uh, landed on this idea of social capital. And what social capital looks like is, yes, it's networks, it's relationships, but it's also spaces that allow for create uh, any BIPOC folks to be able to enter and understand what is going on. There's a complexity of navigating careers that we are not, you know, no one sits down and says, here's how you become a successful director, right? Like, here's where you begin, here's where you go, here are the things that you do, and then here, everyone just kind of does something, and then bam, now they're this big, famous film star, film director. Yes, there's hard work to it, but there's all these other intangibles. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I remember seeing the Steve Jobs story. Yeah. And, uh, again, uh, super, one of the smartest people around and stuff, but... But, you know, when you really start dissecting and go, oh, he grew up in Southern California. <laughs> right? He just, his parents and stuff, they just lived down the street from the IBM, the Xerox or IBM labs. Yes, right? that's they, right. Uh, they were, you know, they had access to uh, uh, secondary computer parts. Absolutely. Right? And blah, blah, blah. It just kept going. And right? just even simple things as the resources to be able to do what he wanted without worrying about, hey, where am I going to get food? Exactly. Where am I, how where am I going to live? Where are my clothes going to come from? Just that alone. Yeah. Am I going to get shot on my way to my fancy high school? Exactly. Would yes. give you the freedom and the opportunity to explore, right? And, yes. and, and more recently, and on the flip side of the Steve Jobs coin, look at what's happening with FDX and and Sam Bank Fredman. And, you know, how does a 30-year-old man like him get access to wealth in the billions, lose it all, and still sit there, not arrested, attending attending conferences? Now, imagine that was me or you, Stephen. <laughs> so when we talk there'd be, about... There'd be a, a Marine team landing in the Bahamas <laughs> extricating we, me. We wouldn't be having this podcast, that's for sure. No, no. I mean, that just <laughs> amplifies to me how social capital... Like, And his parents are both Princeton professors, lawyers at that. And so you would think that this guy would know. And But if you look at the rooms that he was in, if you look at the type of people that got behind him, you know, we're talking about celebrities, but also Congress folks, right? 
He was there as a representative of the crypto sector, despite all of these other POCs that have been working in the space for a long time. Yeah. He was in there making the rules, setting the like, but that's the kind of thing that you can do when you have access. Yeah. And that's when it made me sort of ask this question as we did this research. What if we shifted this issue, right? And I think for the longest time as society, we've done a good job of, of addressing the issue of diversity through the lens of representation. To say, you know what, we need to bring people into this space who are black and brown and indigenous and other, other from other communities that are underserved so that we can look more like how everybody else looks like. Uh, that's great for the one or two people that get there. But the reality is the issue that is preventing diversity from thriving still exists. Right. And that's access. Yes. So what we're doing is flipping this problem and shifting it from problematizing diversity to problematizing access. It does one of two things. One, when you say it's a diversity issue, you're putting the blame on individuals and organizations. And not many people like to be called out on these things. <laughs> and it makes them less hesitant to want to do the work. Right. And it's just a practical matter of how do we resolve this issue of diversity by recognizing the realities of what's on the ground. I'm not talking about the advocacy and aspirational work that happens. There's definitely an, a, a lot of room Absolutely. and space for that. But when we move beyond it and we start to say, how do we now fix this issue? We needed to shift it from individuals to the system, organizations to the system. And what that, again, the second thing that it does is it shifts it from me to a system. And I'm much more willing to get behind fixing the system than fixing my company or fixing me as an individual, right? Even though those things are important. Yes. So by shifting it from problematizing uh, diversity to problematizing access, what we now encourage is by increasing access, diversity becomes the outcome. Well, I, and, and I, I think to me, this is key, right? So I actually, in my last conversation I had, we talked about, um, I guess, two schools of thoughts, right? Oh, it's so hard to change the system and I'm tired and why do I have to do all the work? And, and I get it. Right. I'm tired, too. Right. Uh, but also, like, I, you know, so then they say, well, some people are saying, well, we should just start our own system right from scratch and have our own system and, you know, uh, have us build it all within our strong community, which I think is is part. You need to have a strong community. But uh, I think the future is about the reforms of the system. Absolutely. And how do we do that? And I think that's what you're suggesting is that that part of the answer is by changing access. And we heard about it all throughout, you know, the last couple of years during the BLM movement, the Me Too movement, the Oscar So White movement. We, we heard what happens when diversity isn't prioritized. We see it firsthand what happens when you don't address the issue of access. And so we need to come at it from a perspective that is a little bit more tangible from a day to day. But... The, the, the real big picture piece here is how do we do advocacy work and, and do the problem solving work, mm -hmm. right? And can, can one, one entity, person, group of individuals, can they do both of it? You know, because how do you go into somebody and advocate while then still try to meet them where they're at and try to problem solve? If we're going to have change, systemic change, reform, we need everybody at the table. That's right. Right? So you, if there's a white people in North America still hold most of the levers of power, right? That's the reality. But amongst that, there, there's a, I would say, a majority of white people who actually uh, want to be part of the change, right? But many are unaware of, yep. of, of historical issues. Some are unaware of 
current realities, right? Because uh, and and then there are some who are aware and are are already on the path of of learning and understanding truths and wanting to be part of the reconciliation. So there's so many different types of people. That's right. But I think it's you need to have everybody at the table to eventually to try to reconcile around the realities and then and then together work on the reforms. Absolutely. And how do we then build back better? Right? We kept hearing that, right? Yes. Build back better and and as all of these sort of slogans and phrases are fading into people's memories now because of other realities that we're currently facing, I just want to go back to reminding your audience and, and listeners that we did make a commitment to build back better. And that's not throwing up a black square on Instagram, right? That is, like you said, dismantling existing oppressive structures and colonial structures that have been built by colonizers in lands that even you and I are occupying outside of, you know, we, we're not natives of this land. Like, we have land to go to. Uh, and and I, putting that indigenous worldview and that framework into the new systems that we want to build will be a critical component of what it looks like to do this work in Canada, right? And Absol absolutely. You know, uh, if and I've had the, the privilege to be, I spoke with uh, Cassidy Caron, who's the, the national pre president of the National Council of Métis People, Manu Jules, who used to be the former chief of the uh, Tecumloops uh, First Nation, is now the tax commissioner for First Nations in Canada, and others. Uh, and we keep getting back to truth and reconciliation. Absolutely. Right? And you can't get to reconciliation until you acknowledge the truth and, and come around the table to acknowledge them and recognize them and then reconcile around those truths. And if you can do that, then you can get to the change. Absolutely. Right? So it's a process that is going to take more time and energy and effort, but I think that's what we're talking about. So I want to uh, – so I'm totally – I'm with you 100%. So let's go back where the rubber meets the road here. Yes, we're sir. We're here. So how are you – Tell me what happens here at POV Film specifically. Will do. Uh, and and how are you um, doing the two things you're talking about? Actually making taking tangible steps forward uh, to get to access and doing the advocacy at the same time. Wonderful. And and when I began at POV about five years ago, funnily enough, even the way I got that job was was just another example of how social capital and networking comes into play. You know, it's. Uh, my board chair and my former CEO both happened to own a cottage on a lake and one was in the other having a campfire and one told the other, hey, we're looking for a new executive director. And the other said, have you thought about Biju? And and now here I am, you know? So when we're talking about social capital networks, it, it, it really is this big critical piece. At POV, our work is uh, around championing diversity and inclusion in the creative sector. The way we do that is by collaboration. Uh, we partner with government, industry, unions, and again, by shifting the focus from these individual stakeholder groups to the system at large, we were able to come, come to sort of a consensus on the underlying issue of access. And so then we began the process of how do we increase access into the unions? So we did, a, for example, with one of the unions, we you know, looked at their policies and recognized one of the bylaws says you have to be a part of the union, as you mentioned earlier, to, to refer somebody into the union. So we said, look, if, if your union members are all from one group, let's say a straight white men, uh, you know, it's most likely that those their networks are going to probably reflect their own identities. Like, you know, that's a that's a pretty common Which makes common sense. Common sense. Yes. And if it requires you to get 
people from your communities into the union through referrals of people that are already in your union, then what exactly did you think was going to happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so by just and it wasn't something Self -fulfilling anybody fulfilling prophecy. That's right. And and if you go even further back to the to the last pandemic when uh, when the the Spanish flu hit and the theaters the theaters and film theaters were were established a lot of those went through the same thing that we did this year where everything shut down and and certain people came in and consolidated and bought all these theaters and so all of these groups of trades folks got together and said we need to like protect ourselves so that we are getting equitable wages etc and these unions were created and so these policies were put into place to protect you know the the folks who've been kept out Funnily enough, fast forward 100 years later, these very same policies are keeping people out. Yes. So, hey, isn't this an opportunity for us to look at this and say, why don't we shift this issue and increase membership by providing access to talent who hasn't been in these programs? So we built a training program where our, the hours that those young people do in our training program counts towards hours to the union, and we give them direct opportunity into their apprenticeship program. We also remove any economic barriers folks may face Training to be a creative is expensive. Going to film school is expensive. Yes. Going to ad school, going to, you know, I don't, I don't want to name any schools, but uh, going to any of these training schools, it's expensive. And, you know, if you're, and it's a gig-based industry, so, you know, you need, like, it's not, if you need the freedom of economic empowerment to be able to, like, actually do this job in this industry. Yeah. So that by itself eliminates, you know, close to 80% of the Canadian population who are living paycheck to paycheck, who can't take that risk who can't pay for their kids to go to a film school, fail, try again, fail again, try again, fail again, and then finally find their break because they need, like immigrants like me, our parents counted on me to have a second job after school so we can put food at the table. So yeah. that was not an opportunity that was ever given to me. Not because I didn't want to or not because I didn't think I'd be good at it because I didn't know it was a viable path for me, an economically and viable path And also your priority was to the family. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So, so your programs here are fully funded? They're fully funded, and this is where the government comes in, and we say, look, there's a, a talent development shortage that's happening right now. Uh, the, there's a labor shortage in an industry that's booming. Uh, during the pandemic, You know what was very clear was people love content and consuming content. And so there's a real space here, I think, as Canadians, for us to include a lot of diverse talent from across the country to be a part of that economic success, right? And that... that that boom that we're facing, I think there was close to a, a 1.15 million square footage of studio space that was being built in Toronto alone. Yeah, well, th this is the thing, right? So for those who are not in Canada, so in the 80s into the 90s, Vancouver basically became Hollywood North yep. uh, uh, for move for filmmaking, television making, huge amounts of investment, not only in infrastructure, but in talented, in talent, right? Production talent where... Uh, uh, foreign film companies could come in and actually just hire the people locally. That's right? right. Toronto was having the same thing, especially in commercial thing, and now Toronto is essentially on fire. We, yeah, we have Netflix coming in. Right. We have Unity coming you know, in. I think Amazon's going to open up it, soon. It's like the amount so. of content that being created in a city, and then and then there's the other part, which is content creators that can now live remotely. That's right. right. From our far north and, and all parts of Canada and the world. The digital right. media side, the interactive digital media, AR, VR, gaming, all of that is going to really open up, I think, the way we even interact with it. We're at the, at the precipice of it. So what we've done in TV and film is partner with the government to say, look, there's an emerging opportunity for you to address this diversity issue by using workforce development as the tool. And that'll actually contribute to economic development. So 
When I talk about practicality and problem solving in the type of systems change that I've been involved in in the past while, you know, this is the type of stuff that makes it sustainable, right? Because it's not just doing the good thing because of the moral imperative. You need to tie in the economic imperative to it as well, Absolutely. right? And especially if you're going to engage systems level stakeholders, they need to know that it's going to be sustainable. And so now the unions have interest in wanting to contribute to this issue. Now the government has interest in wanting to invest in, in this issue. The industry has a mandate and a priority because they're losing business to other cities around the world who've already got this figured out. You know, mm -hmm. And Canadians are well far behind a lot of other countries, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, the UK is so much farther when it comes to skills development in the screen industries than we are. The U.S., you know, Atlanta, L.A., New York. Well, there and because also there's a, a number of factors playing in, right? So first you have capacity, Yep. right? So, yeah, you can have instrument, but you need actual people that are skilled at the level, especially as things start VFX, all kinds of crazy filmmaking and content making. So you have that. And a lot of these organizations are making are starting to make more of a commitment to diversity. Absolutely. Right? So if you you can have, if you don't have diverse, I, I know some people, they were working on a film which the subject matter is really, a, 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 you know, at the center of the film. It's a black story, right? And it's it's basically was developed by a white person, <laughs> <That's> right? right. <laughs> and and who, who who is a very talented also, but they, they realize they need to, be more diverse as a team to bring this project to fruition. Absolutely. Right? But if you don't have that, if there isn't that talent, what are you going to do? And, you know, if you're a client and if you're a company and you want to penetrate into a new market and you want to start to talk to the communities that live there, you want to make sure that the folks that are developing your campaigns and your marketing and your content look like the communities that you're serving, right? It's a, it's a very basic understanding. And I think for the longest time, the industry was allowed to get away with it. Now the clients are saying, if you can't do it, we'll just go somewhere else. I was speaking to a very successful advertising agency and uh, I did a speaking engagement with them. Amazing people, super talented, uh, great people. And, you know, they asked a lot of great questions. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that everyone could say when you're looking at television, especially here in Canada, is that you go, oh, that ads, you know, all the ads are coming up. I go, wow, that's a, a black man and an Asian woman and biracial kids, right? And the next ad, it's, uh, uh, you know, two women, LBGPQ community and uh, uh, adopted children because yep. one's black, you know, whatever. It's, it's, you're visually seeing it. And I guess they were asking, you know, what I thought about that. I said, well, it's good. I can see it's more diverse. But I said, I think we need to go a little further than that. I think when a client and an ad agency are working together and they want to embrace diversity and inclusion, they actually have to engage the communities to understand it authentically. That's right. And not just in front of the camera, Stephen. No, exactly. Also behind the camera, yes. right? Because what the other, and to, to build on the example that you brought about a, about a white creative talking about black narratives, there's so much harm that can happen from that because of a lack of lived experience and connection that that white artist may not have like a like a black artist would from that from a similar community right and if you look at how this then amplifies across our country in terms of forming opinions about community groups you know and we think about why does the public at large think about groups this way why do they see black and indigenous communities as less than and not as as good enough or or as 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 resilient as as the white yeah, and, population and the thing is it, it it might not even this is what i say to people it might not even be intentional 
That's right. right. If you don't know, right, which is, and of course they're talented, they're a talented director or cinematographer or what it does, it's not about their level of talent. It's about uh, taking the time to really understand, right? And that's where the inclusive part comes in, right? Yeah. It's not just being that you need to be inclusive of the way that things are of understanding. I'll push it a bit further and say inclusion is inviting somebody to the dance. Inclusivity is asking them their song and playing it at the dance. Okay. And, I, and I think we've done a good job of including. So we invite people to these, to these conversations, but their opinions don't form any of the policy or systems design work that's currently happening. So it becomes a performative thing. It becomes everybody comes into the room to dance, but all of the people that were invited are on one side and all the people that weren't on, are on the other side. That's not, that's not inclusion. Sure, they're included, but that's not inclusion. Those were the dances I went to in grade five. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were fun ones. So, But I actually went over there to the other side. And, and I think that's what some of the BIPOC folks do, some of the diverse I folks do. Like you and I, I can tell we're very social. We don't, yeah. we, we're not going to let somebody's discrimination stop us from moving forward. But why should that be expected out of everybody? Not everybody's a Steven or a Bidget. No, ex exactly. That's and it, what and it shouldn't matter, to be honest. It should be that if you are wanting to succeed, it should just come down to merit, like you began this conversation with, right? Yes. It should come down to merit. It shouldn't come down to this idea that I need to do this or that and do extra stuff on the background and because then it leads to things that we saw over the, over the last couple of years, especially now when there's such a disparity of views and opinions mm -hmm. about folks and people. You know, everyone is just taking the red flag or the blue flag now. It's just like we're getting to the point where conversation isn't even occurring. So it's important that narratives that are being told about communities come from those communities because that's what then helps to inform the wide mass and the wide population's understanding of those communities. So it's a really... Crucial part, uh, we were, I was at a roundtable with Heritage Canada uh, a few weeks ago, and they're, in, they're beginning this fund called Changing Narratives with that intention. Like, you know, it's, it's a small drop in the bucket, but even if you look at the cultural funding that goes out, right? Like most of that, that funding goes to ballets and operas and, you know, and the theater, right? Like, and these aren't spaces that are occupied or where BIPOC folks necessarily are thriving, right? Where they are thriving are things like music and film, and yet they get the least amount of investment. So... It's, it's a systems change that we need to make because we contributed massively to the GDP, the film industry last year. We're talking billions of dollars, of course, yeah. but who's benefiting from that? And it's not the communities where those films are made. It's not the communities where that money is going. So we have an opportunity, I think, to connect some of the dots. And at POV, we're doing that. We're saying, let's bring the government, let's bring the industry, let's bring the community folks and build training programs, not just because you know it's the right thing to do, but it is the economically imperative thing to do to make yes. the industry competitive. But also it gives young people the opportunity not to feel like they're this, you know, sorry case. Oh, I feel, oh, poor Biju. You know, let me give him a chance. It's, whoa, Biju has an amazing talent. All I needed to do was give him some opportunities to like st stretch his creative muscles and bam, he's on his way. Amazing. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I usually leave the last word and ask if you're hopeful, but I think you just answered it. Yes, right. I am almost to a fault. I'm hopeful, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> well, I hear it and I feel the passion and I'm excited for you. I'm excited for POV Film. I'm excited for the young people that you're supporting. So, uh, hey, Bijou, thank you so much. Stephen, thank uh, you. I look forward to many more conversations on and offline. So thank you to my guests, Bijou. Congratulations on this amazing podcast. Really, really happy to be Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. 
If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to rate our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcast. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer, and engineer extraordinaire, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. We also had a guest engineer, Slim. Big shout out here in Toronto. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change is available at your favorite bookstores across the U.S. and Canada and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or visit my website at stephendorsey.com. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.